McCartney has brought to life England's most lovable, famous storybook character. Meet Rupert the Bear. Hello, Mr. Butterfly. What are you doing here? Come on, up you go. Paul not only produced this beautifully illustrated animated short, but also wrote its magnificent score. Rupert Bear is this little white teddy bear that I first met when I was a kid. He's been having adventures now, I think, for about 60 years with his little friends. I'm going for a walk in the hills. Do you want to come? Oh, I wish I mm. could come, but I have to do some shopping. And I have to look after baby brother. <laughs> it wasn't really till I was a bit older and I was reading one of my children, a bedtime story from Rupert, that I started to think what a great character he could be for these days. If someone needed to animate him. To me, he's a very optimistic little fella. And that was what I liked about him as a cartoon character. So the challenge was to try and look for a really good story that um, involved a lot of the characters. So we, we came up with the short, Rupert and the Frog Song. Then you have an adventure where he goes off to somewhere sort of special, which he's always doing in the annuals. This time we had him going off into a cave deep below a mountain where the frogs are having their celebration. Frogs only beyond this point. It's not very clear how often this celebration is, but I suspect it's about once every 200 years myself. Hey, Dad, when's the show going to start? Hey, Dad. Now look, son, this only happens once every couple of hundred years. If you don't pipe down, I will... I will not bring you again. <laughs> Shut up. With animation, it can do anything. A camera can go anywhere. I mean, it can just swing down from the top of the tree, go underwater, come back up again. And it's that kind of magic of being able to do absolutely anything with animation that attracts me. Cheerio! Mind how you go! Paul McCartney's magical animated short is appearing this month on the Disney Channel. Rupert and the Frog Song. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Walls, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all. Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, everyone, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wilds. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Yes, folks, you did indeed read that title correctly. Today we are going to be going over everything to do with Rupert the Bear that is somehow related to Paul McCartney. I'm sure you all know that the song We All Stand Together was taken from a short film called Rupert and the Frog Song, which was shown before screenings of Give My Regards to Broad Street. But did you know that the story goes much deeper than that? Much, much deeper. Well, fortunately, for anyone in the dark... That's what I'm here to explain, despite the fact that there are barely any McCartney biographies that do anything other than touch on this in the briefest form. For this episode, I'm going to give as brief a backstory as I can on the McCartney-Rupert project, before then moving on to a song-by-song song of what was originally going to be the Rupert the Bear soundtrack album. Yes, folks, you heard me correctly, there was supposed to be an album's worth of material for this thing, and you're about to hear it all, and hear me talk about it all. 
Honestly, folks, despite being British as a butter pie, I really do not have that many memories of Rupert Bear in my life. My generation was far more interested in properties like Postman Pat, Fireman Sam, and of course, Tolls the Tank Engine. Though, when I asked my mum about it, she did say that I used to read some of the Rupert the Bear annuals when I was a kid, so there must be some lingering impact that that little white bear must have made on me. And I've got to admit, I was very looking forward to researching this episode. This has been a bit of a gap in my McCartney knowledge that I wanted to fill in, and then I realised not a lot of you out there know all that much about it as well. So, yeah, this has been a real in-depth learning experience for me. This is a, a side of the McCartney story that is just so whimsical and silly, and yet also very interesting, and it deserves its own moment in the sun. That's why we're here to talk about it today. Also, just before we begin, I want to tell a quick joke. The only thing that I ever really knew about Rupert the Bear in my teenage years why does Rupert the Bear wear a yellow scarf and a red jumper? Because he's a cunt. Let's start the show, folks. And we're going to kick things off with some housekeeping. Starting off, do we have anything in terms of news for today? No, we do not. So we'll get right onto the emails. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod.com at gmail.com. I always love to read out your correspondence here on the show, whether it's to do with an episode, Paul himself, maybe you just want to say hello, whatever it is, drop me an email. And we're not going to start off with a, what is technically an email today, this was sent to me on Facebook uh, by Mr. Tim Brownrig, my latest fabulous guest on Macca in Your Attic. Do go and check out that episode, it's up right now. And he reminded me of this exchange whilst we were talking and I could not include it here. Uh, this is uh, in reference to mine and Dr. Duncan Driver's review of Young Boy on our third Flaming Pie episode. He reads, Hey Sam, I was listening to your third out of three Flaming Pie episode. I died of laughter when you got to Young Boy and the lack of sexual success with poor young James. I must say, my wife girlfriend at the time and I went to see James McCartney play a number of years ago at a pub. We were front row centre. He was staring at her the whole fucking show. At the end I'm like, um, were you as weirded out as I was by him staring at you all night? She was like, oh my god, you noticed? That was a fun night. Yeah, he was a creepy dude. We saw him again a couple of years later. He signed a photo of us three that we took at the time before. And he drew a black hair on him and dotted his eyes black with a sharpie. So you can't even tell who it is anymore. Sigh. What a strange couple of encounters with a McCartney. Not the McCartney, I know, but still pretty damn close. Especially, you know, with the resemblance and all that. But yeah, maybe there is a link between young boy and the way he treated you and your girlfriend at the time, now your now wife at that show. Gosh. You know, I'd feel honoured for any McCartney to uh, stare at me, but possibly not in that way. Again, I, I do still make my point that if your dad is such a slayer like McCartney, a man who notoriously has gotten all the loving he's ever wanted in his life, then, you know, the odds of that not being passed directly on to the next generation is actually, is actually quite high. You know, you've got a lot to, look, to like, live up to. 
and since James doesn't look exactly like his dad and is probably personality-wise very like very different, it, it must just be so much pressure on him that it's hard not to stumble at the first hurdle, I guess. But also, maybe he's just a creepy dude and that's why he hasn't gotten any action. Who knows? Also, I have a quick message from patron Warren Butson, who does some excellent advertising work for the pod here, which is always appreciated. He says, Good work on the Flaming Pie album, Sam. It was full of your usual brilliant contextual pre-album histories and the forensic attention to detail that we expect. The third part with Dr. Duncan Driver was excellent. He is such a thoughtful and intelligent critic and ideal folk for you as he's a big fan but very prepared to call out the weak points as you are too. I do get a bit lost with all the other stuff you do these days and just not having the time to listen to it all on both Patreon and off but we get our money's worth for sure and appreciate the work you put in even if I don't post as often as I'd like. How long have I been supporting you now? I've lost count, but I am glad that more people are. Though I am amazed how many don't, considering this remains the number one podcast for Maca Evaluation. Keep going, Sam, even if you painfully ignore So Glad to See You Here as one of the Big Mac's greatest rock vocals ever. I will totally be getting the Back to the Egg Super Deluxe Box set when it finally comes. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for that lovely little message there. Thank you for being so kind. I do apologise that I don't rate So Glad to See You Here as highly as you do. I think I was nicer to it on my Listen With Back to the Egg episode than I was originally. But yeah, thank you so much for the comments on the Flaming Pie episodes. I'm really proud of that triad. And don't worry if you can't watch all of the content. It's all going to be out there forever anyways. And thank you for drawing people's attentions to things like the Patreon vlogs that I do and Macir in your attic. You know, I'm, I've got a lot of pies spinning and it's nice to see that it is appreciated. Of course, the most important part of that email is the fact that, yeah, it would be nice if a few more people checked out the Patreon. I am proud of the work that I put, put up on there and there's lots of bonus stuff for all of you to check out but i will be talking about that in just a little moment thank you warren butson for your continued patronage anyway on to the rest of the plugs follow us on twitter which is at mccartney pod for daddy updates for bonus poor or nothing written content check out the blog which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com follow us on facebook instagram and youtube by typing in paul nothing or paul mccartney podcast of course YouTube is the one place where you can check out brand new episodes of Macca in your attic with the latest featuring one of the previous correspondents there, Mr. Tim Brownrig, who rather uh, interestingly, shall we say, chose not to show any vinyl at all, at least for his five picks. There was still a lot of vinyl shown on the episode, but he decided that his memorabilia collection was so vast that he could eschew vinyl altogether because everyone shows vinyl on that show and oh my god so much fun was had please go check out that episode i'm really proud of that one as well if you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds please leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on whether it's leaving a bunch of stars a thumbs up a tick a comment here or there even sharing it with your friends anything you can do to spread the good Paul or nothing word is always appreciated you know of course we want the biggest Paul or nothing family possible we're getting new listeners every day but who doesn't want more you know I've, I've got ambitions folks come on meet me halfway here 
And finally, if you want to help out the show directly and you want to help keep the lights running, help keep me in new product to review, guests to come on, and hey, maybe even have time for me to take off work and focus on the show, then please check out our Patreon page. Links down below. Of course, it's not just a GoFundMe. You do get your money's worth on my Patreon. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to all episodes of Mac It In Your Attic as soon as they are recorded. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So whenever I do an episode on Zoom, likely with a guest, it will be recorded. And before I even start to edit it or trim it down or anything like that, it will go immediately up on the Patreon page. So not only do you get the full unedited conversation, but you also get to see my lovely mug as well. You also get access to lost and unreleased episodes of Mac It In Your Attic, all of the scripts that I use for the show, as well as the brand new Patreon vlog series. The latest episode now, I think number six, where I have ranked every single Paul McCartney A-side and B-side from 1970 to 1989. It was not easy. It's a very long episode indeed. If you've got the Patreon, if you want to get the Patreon because you want to watch it, then please go check it out because I'm very proud of it indeed. And also, it's quite funny, it's a bit of a coincidence, Two Legs has just released a very similar episode. Um, Don't go and check out their free one, though. Go and check out my one that you're going to pay for. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to all of my patrons as well for without them none of this is possible and I'm internally grateful for their patronage people like Jeff H David Stabersky, Mitzi Carter Andy Cochran Guy Jenkinson Nancy Twoey Richard Campbell Christopher Newman Mrs P Broderick Harper Moti Riper Robert Shuley Richard Driver Chris Atkinson Richard Billington Mr B Teresa Breda Stephanie Miller Katrina S Sam Hode Lou DiLonardo Robert A Carabelli Warren Butson Cheryl McCoy Matt Phillips And, of course, Mr. Percy Thrillington. Anyway, now that all that housekeeping is out of the way, folks, it's time to take a little trip down to Nutwood as we explore the world of Rupert the Bear.
Before we begin, we should first familiarise, or in the case of Brits listening to the show, re-familiarise ourselves with Rupert the Bear. And who the heck is this Rupert character anyway? Well, thanks to a combination of the Wikipedia page and a site literally called rupertandthefrogsong.co.uk, I can now tell you. Rupert is a bear who lives with his parents in a house in Nutwood, a fictional idyllic English village. He is drawn with a red jumper and bright yellow checked trousers with a matching scarf. Originally depicted as a brown bear, his colour soon changed to white to save on printing costs, though he remained brown on the covers of the annuals. The series often features fantastic and magical adventures in faraway lands. Each story begins in Nutwood, where Rupert usually sets out on a small errand for his mother or to visit a friend, which then develops into an adventure to an exotic place, such as King Frost's Castle, the Kingdom of the Birds, Underground, or to the bottom of the sea. Sometimes, one of the Professor's inventions might also open up the door to one of Rupert's adventures. At the end of the story, Rupert returns to Nutwood, where all is safe and well, and where his parents seem perfectly sanguine about his adventures, big or small. In the 1930s, there was a vogue for children's cartoons in British newspapers. Teddy Tail appeared in the Daily Mail, and Pip, Squeak and Wilfred in the Daily Mirror. The Express decided that they should have their own cartoon, and turned to Mary Tortell, who was the wife of one of their sub-editors. She invented the little bear, Rupert, devising the stories and drawing the illustrations herself. Rupert appeared and still appears every day in the British newspaper, The Daily Express. It is easily one-off, if not the longest-running children's cartoon in a newspaper anywhere in the world. I'm going off-script a little here, but sadly it's a very right-wing newspaper nowadays, but I guess it makes sense, considering that Rupert is a symbol of all things idyllically English, and it's nice for him to balance things out, maybe with a bit of kindness. The first Rupert cartoon appeared on November 8th, 1920. Two drawings appeared each day, with a short text of story beneath them. Mary Tortell continued to draw Rupert until 1935, when her eyesight began to fail. Casting around for someone to take over, the Express asked an artist and magazine illustrator named Alfred Bestall to fill in for six weeks. So, Alfred Bestall took over, but the six weeks extended to 30 years until he retired in 1965 and other artists took over. Unlike most modern comic strips, Rupert Bear has always been produced in the original form of a strip with illustrations of accompanying text called text comics, as opposed to text incorporated directly into the art, for example, within speech balloons. Bestel developed the classic Rupert story format. The story is told in picture form, generally two panels each day in the newspaper, and four panels per day in the annuals. In simple page headers, in rhyming two-line-per-image verse, and as running prose at the foot. Rupert annuals can therefore be read on four levels. So, what does any of this have to do with Paul McCartney? Well, it turns out there is a biography titled The Life and Works of Alfred Bestall by Caroline G. Bott, where Paul himself actually did the foreword, and we're going to read it now. Shout out to Nicholas Leroy, creator of thepaulmccartneyproject.com, for sending me this, by the way. And it reads, I never had a teddy bear, but as a boy... I always turned around to the Rupert column in my parents' Daily Express and was particularly fond of the Rupert Christmas annuals. I rediscovered him in the 70s when I started reading bedtime stories to my eldest daughter, Heather. For some reason, I tend to think of Rupert as an 11-year-old boy. I don't know why. His attitude is very much, it can be done. He's very positive and always has that spark of optimism combined with a certain innocence, which I think is what drew me to him in the first place. For the British, Rupert is an institution, like the Queen, Britain wouldn't be the same without him. 
So, from what we could infer is that Paul has been familiar with Rupert the Bear since the late 1940s. Remember, folks, Paul is nearly 80 fucking years old by now. And yet, Paul was around for the golden age of Rupert the Bear, likely being around the perfect age to experience that perfect post-war version of Rupert, which was around the height of his popularity. Paul reiterated his love for these stories on the 100th anniversary of the publishing of the first Rupert the Bear comic strip. If you remember, this is when he released that cheesy picture disc of We All Stand Together with him and Rupert on the disc. And yeah, now that I've done this episode, I just have to go and get it. Anyway, it reads, I've always loved animation. It started with the Disney cartoons and went from there. As a kid, I would always get the Rupert annual at Christmas. I remember getting the idea for a film project when looking through one of them. There was a standout image in colour, and when I saw it, I could imagine a concert of frogs with them all doing different parts, a choir and an orchestra, and I could almost hear the music. And yes, folks, there is one image from one of these Rupert annuals, I think it's like 1958 or something, where it is literally just the frog chorus, but done in a classic watercolour style. And yeah, more on the frogs later. What is important, though, is that he's already bringing up the idea of Rupert the Bear and Disney in the same sentence. And as we will see, the level of quality and timelessness of the Walt Disney films is something that Paul would want for his own project. Something else I do want to point out is that in this quote and the last one, Paul's main avenue to Rupert, especially around this time, is through the annuals. These would be large books that would collect some of the best content throughout each year, meaning that, besides from the contemporaneous stuff being released in the paper at the time, two panels a day, Paul was only really reading the best Rupert material, and so will have only had the best stories to sift through and choose from when coming up with his own Rupert narrative. There's also another quote from Paul about Rupert that really doesn't add much and I couldn't exactly find a place to put it, so I'll just include it here as it is as cute as anything. He reads, Congratulations to Rupert on his 100th birthday. The great thing is, is that he never looks a day older. Having been a fan of his since my early days in Liverpool, I know what he means to two generations of young kids and old kids. In his character and attitude to the world, he sums up the best of the British tradition and reminds us of an innocence we would all love to cherish. So, congratulations to my little Burr. Your fans are celebrating your 100th birthday, and I, for one, think you deserve a telegram from the Queen. Anyway, how was Paul even legally able to embark upon this this project? You know, he didn't invent Rupert the Bear. Well, fast forward to around the Lady B Abbey Road era. You know, the Beatles are coming to an end, and Paul is looking at setting his sights on future projects. And he approaches the Daily Express editor, Sir Max Aitken, and convinced him to sell him the film rights. So this just means he's able to make a Rupert film. He doesn't own Rupert or anything like that. He doesn't, you know, have any sway over new Rupert cartoons in the paper. But by 1970, he was the only person on Earth who could make a Rupert the Bear film project. We don't have a figure for how much he exactly spent, but considering how much of a factor cost is going to be in this story, I imagine it was a pretty penny. Rather interestingly, part of Macca's sales pitch was his bemoaning of the Americanization of Winnie the Pooh by Walt Disney, whereby he promised the Daily Express to keep US accents out of this very British story. Now, exactly when Paul first began this little project in earnest, 
is a little hazy of a date. Again, there is very little written about this, but it appears that the real effort was put into effect around the late 70s into the early 80s. To lead the project, he approached Argentinian animator Oscar Grillo, with whom his wife Linda had worked on the animated short for Seaside Woman. And despite that song going all the way back to the 1972 Red Rose Speedway sessions, the short film didn't come out until 1980. So again, we can put the date around this period. And Grillo pitched shooting a Rupert short before embarking on a feature. Still, McCartney was a man of prestige and quality and wanted only the finest work for Rupert right from the get-go. When speaking with Stills magazine in June of 84, he said, I'm aiming for something equivalent to Walt Disney in as much as it's very highly skilled animation. He continues, We're playing with the idea of how Disney can you go? Because obviously Rupert is anchored in the best style books. We took the 40s as our period where Rupert is in full colour and where I think there is a lot of Disney influence. The big discovery was to go back to the annuals we began by taking a lot of license, saying, well, this is a film now, so we can do what we want. We moved in some directions that we ultimately had to come back from, and in the end, we got closer and closer to Bestel. Now, folks, this may come as a surprise to you, but the animation process of the Disney Corporation is not a cheap one, and very quickly, money became an issue. Again, when speaking to movie magazine stills, McCartney explained everything. Oscar Grillo wanted to spend a lot of money on it, which I don't blame him for. You know, if it was someone else's money, I'd want to spend 50 million as soon as I look at you. But for a pilot, just to see if the whole idea worked, I thought it was a bit risky. When speaking at a later date, McCartney did admit to being a little over his head with the whole thing, which is more than he ever did for Give My Regards to Broad Street, so that, so that is saying something. He said, I didn't realise what a difficult task it actually was. I remember telling John Lennon about it, and he encouraged me to have a go, which was great, but you need more than that to make a film. There were so many different things to think about, things like securing the rights. It was all too much. Still, despite the actual animation work being somewhat slow, it did not mean that no progress had been made overall. Now, since Macca had acquired the rights possibly even as early as a decade before, he had started work on the music as early as 1970, with even more work going right through the 70s, whilst the whole thing was still in that kind of maybe phase. You know, it makes sense, of course. Paul loves to make music anyway, and if the film was going to happen, he would already have the entire soundtrack in the back pocket. Well, not the entire soundtrack. As it turns out, Little Lamb Dragonfly a song that would make its way onto Red Rose Speedway, was actually one of the first songs written for this project. However, as we know, Denny Lane during the Red Rose Speedway sessions pointed out to Paul how much of a good song that is and how they should release it, and the rest is history. Though, it does make you wonder what other songs may have been Rupert the Bear songs in another world. Who knows? So, since things were getting a bit too expensive at this point, Paul decides to scale things back. And so he decided to do the short instead with one Jeff Dunbar helming the animation. He explained, We've got all these ideas cooking, but I don't think anyone was eager to go into the 40 million job without knowing a hell of a lot more. So yeah, he turns to Jeff Dunbar, who already has an incredible pedigree to his own name. His first animation, Lautrec, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and his second effort took home the Golden Bear in Berlin. The result of their collaboration was... 
you guessed it, Rupert and the Frog Song, a 13-minute cartoon inspired by the aforementioned Alfred Bestel illustration in the 58 Rupert Annual. The film featured the vocal talents of June Whitfield and Windsor Davis, while McCartney himself voiced Rupert and his pals. It featured and was released alongside the single version of We All Stand Together, a.k.a. The Frog Song, which was widely known as one of the more controversial McCartney songs ever. Still, both the song and the short were a huge success, with the former reaching number three in the UK charts and the latter becoming one of the best-selling videos of 1985, which is good, as the only way to see it in cinemas was to see it as the short film shown before the box office bomb that was Give My Regards to Broad Street. Rupert and the Frog Song would also go on to win the BAFTA Award, which is the British Academy of Film and Television Awards, for Best Animated Short. Now, folks, I was never planning on doing a full review of either the short film or the song, and so you will have to wait for future episodes for me to cover either. Still, what I will say is that it's very clear, especially based on the non-froggy sections of the film, what McCartney was going for. The animation looks like it was ripped right out of the annuals, and the overall tone of the thing is wonderfully and idyllically British, charming, and totally faithful to that source material. It's a fantastic example of animation that comes from outside the major studios at the time and shows how a pure, if uncompromising vision can create something wholly unique and special when compared to the factory-style, committee-driven you know, world of animation executives. Now, no one else would have made it the way Paul did, and that is the ultimate proof that he was the only person to do it properly and tip-topperly. However, this is not where the story ends, nor is it where McCartney wanted it or wanted us to think it was ending. The animation of Rupert and the Frog Song ends with the words, that's all for now, paving the way for the full-length feature. Now, again, things start to get a little bit foggy here, like some sources say that now is where Oscar Grillo was brought into the project, but... I don't think that's correct. You know, Jeff Dunbar did the short. He's won the BAFTA for it. So, yeah, this is more than likely 100% a Jeff Dunbar affair. And, you know, the pair were emboldened by their recent success with this property. And so Paul and the MPL team and Dunbar set their sights back on producing a fully animated movie. Now, whilst most people loved the Rupert the Bear short, something that a lot of people pointed out to Paul was that Rupert himself, the titular bear, was a largely passive character in the Frog Song. You know, he didn't do much. And, you know, he was going to have to be a little more active and proactive if he was going to be the focal point of a film. Paul was aware of this and only ever intended the character to be used that way because it was a short that was built around a song. Again, when speaking with Magazine Stills in 84, Paul addresses how he wanted to make something more focused on Rupert and to have him as a proper, active protagonist. He says, He'd have a much more central role to play. One of the problems with Rupert is that I don't think the stories are very good. Generally, he tends to go away from home, have an adventure, and then come back for tea. That's nice, but there's no one big Cinderella story. Now, Paul is very perceptive here. No, Rupert doesn't really go on many high-stake adventures with danger, high-octane action, grand-sweeping plot lines, or consequences that affect the status quo in any way. 
However, this is because Rupert's stories are short comic strips, and so Paul would have to cherry-pick elements to, to create one, or you know, have to add his own little bit of conflict and storytelling pizzazz to justify a feature-length picture. And as we will see shortly, I think that's exactly what he did. Again, when speaking with Stills in 84, he said, I've got an idea for a full-length story, which is kind of a quest. We've spent a lot of time on it now, and we're starting to feel it's coming together, that we're cracking it. But then, it's like having written a song. I know when I've got a hit. Sadly, however, despite all the work and money that Macca had sunk into this thing, the hit he was hoping for was never to come to pass. Unfortunately, as Philip Norman explains in Paul McCartney, the biography, by the late 80s, Paul found himself legally unable to continue working on the project. He writes... Another producer acquired the Rupert rights and insisted the feature-length version could only be made by his company and NPL in partnership. With that, the project withered away. So, with someone else coming in like this, you know, Paul, a man who rather famously likes to be at the head of all of his projects, to be in control and to have that real authorial voice, of course he was going to leave. I mean... I don't know why someone would want to come in and buy the rights anyway. Paul had done such a good job with the original Rupert. So I can only imagine that the motivations for this other producer to come in were financial. Sadly, though, in all likelihood, the lengthy production time and all of the uncertainties around the production, along with the fact that Paul, in likelihood, only had a limited amount of time to work on it anyway as the sole rights holder, and because of all the other stuff he was doing in his life, you know, like being in wings, it meant that this coming to a close this way and not coming to fruition was more of an inevitability than McCartney would probably have hoped for. Like, maybe if he didn't immediately do things like Tug of War and Pipes of Peace, and maybe if he didn't do Give My Regards to Broad Street, maybe this would have happened. I mean, let's just get Broad Street out of the way. Let's just focus on Rupert. How great would have that have been? Oh, well. So, whilst the project never did come to fruition, it doesn't mean that there isn't anything to show for it. Thankfully, as you're about to hear shortly, we do have a rough draft of Paul's soundtrack for what would have been the film. Rather shockingly, this comes in the form of an entire album's worth of songs that were all apparently recorded in one day. Although, I do doubt this, because... Some of the original tracks were recorded like in the early 70s and some were recorded in like the mid-70s as well. And some of them were apparently recorded by Wings as well, but I'm quite doubtful of that too. The collection was eventually and illegally released by the notorious bootleg record label, the amazing Cornyphone record label. Some pressings just contain these songs, but others also feature We All Stand Together as the final track. Now... For those of you out there who are looking forward to my Frog Song review, you will have to wait till the next official Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, aka after we do Driving Rain. Anyway, on this album, we actually get quite a bit of storybook-like narration from McCartney, where he gives us a certain peek into what the story for his version of Rupert the Bear, the movie, would have been like. And you know what? Let's just listen to it right now. Once upon a time, there was a young white bear called Rupert. He lived with his mother and father in the village of Nutwood. 
One day, he's exploring in the woods when he's surprised by a black-winged stallion leading a herd of white flying horses. They tell Rupert of a secret mission that the King of the Birds has for him, and the stallion says they've been sent to take him to the king. So Rupert sits on the leader's back, and off they... After a long run, they leap off the edge of a high cliff and start to climb towards the clouds. As the huge clouds part, they see the palace of the King of the Birds. The king explains that the north wind has gone out of control and is about to freeze the whole world over. Rupert agrees to help and flies away, carried by a giant bird. But they meet icy winds which freeze the bird's wings over and he has to drop Rupert, who manages to parachute down near a tropical island. After a celebration with the natives, where Rupert meets Sailor Sam, they set off the next day across the sea. A great storm blows up and their small boat is tossed by giant waves. They're washed up on the shore and are taken by friends home to Nutwood. After a visit by Dr. Lyon, Rupert begins to feel better and one day he goes for a walk in the countryside. Rupert now decides to carry on with his mission and with the help of the professor, he sets off in a special flying bubble to seek the advice of the wise goat of the mountains. After many adventures, he meets Jack Frost but they are both buried by a massive avalanche of snow and ice. The friendly south wind rescues them, and after a fierce battle, they and all their helpers defeat the north wind. The balance between the winds is restored, and Rupert and his friends say goodbye and return home for tea. So, from what I can gather, the story begins with Rupert at his home in Nutwood. He's taken to the palace of the King of the Birds upon some winged horses. He gets there. The King of the Bird informs him of some trouble with the great north wind. Then, whilst riding another giant bird's back, he crashes on a tropical island. He then meets Sailor Sam and goes across the sea, back home to Nutwood, which I guess is a coastal place, maybe? Then he visits the Professor, who, with the help of a magic flying bubble, goes on more adventures, encountering the wise goat of the north and Jack Frost. There's an avalanche, a big battle of sorts, and then they defeat the north wind. Rupert then returns home again for tea. Now, we're going to have to break this one down a bit, folks, because, my God, is there ever a lot going on here. First of all, I just want to point out that 90% of that, I'm pretty sure, is all taken from the Bestel books. Like, Rupert on winged horses, Rupert in a bubble, Sailor Sam on the, on the island, the wise goat of the north, Jack Frost... That's all stuff that I can confirm is real, because if you go on Vimeo, there is a copy of the bootleg album that we're going to talk about today, which is actually set to images from various Rupert annuals, and they are matching with the music, and it actually gives a kind of uh, audio-visual experience that you don't get from just the books or just the music. And it does kind of summarise what the movie may have looked like in still image form. It's really interesting. So, yeah, we know that McCartney from Give My Regards to Broad Street is not the master of the filmic narrative or the three-act structure. And I guess it's kind of hard not to notice how strange the plot is here from start to finish. But... I do like how Paul is taking elements from several Rupert the Bear stories. And I've got to say, it's a very clever and sensible thing to do. It means you can take all of these iconic and memorable moments and images and string them together for one badass tale. 
if you have the skill to do it, that is. Whilst Paul may be able to spot the best elements of Rupert's back catalogue, I am not sure he would have been deft enough to connect them together into the seamless narrative. You know, oh, it's it's it, it's hard to criticise because we don't have the majority of the stuff to work with. There's never been a Rupert the Bear script leaked or anything like that. We've never seen any test animations or anything like that. We just have the Frog Song short and the album. And I know it's harsh to criticise something that, that like doesn't even exist. You know, it's like criticising the Yellow Submarine remake that never got made, for example. Though we do have more of that, I guess. But it's clear that this wasn't going to be the typical cinematic affair. There's no specific scenes or dialogue, and only the most rudimentary plot points are being mapped out. I can't help but feel how fucking strange it is. And, you know, I'm not on about the inclusion of flying horses or magic bubbles or the king of the birds. You know, they are all part of the Rupert the Bear universe, as I say, as strange as it sounds. Um, but what I'm talking about is how Rupert starts off with a fairly normal hero type story you know he takes up the challenge to help the king of the birds fight the north wind he encounters trouble and he lands on the island and then goes back home he, yeah you know rather than gathering himself together and pressing on with his quest he goes home for a bit now i'm sure this would have been fleshed out in the final film or i would have hoped so but this would be like what if luke went back to tatooine after alderaan blew up or if frodo went back to the shire after the fellowship broke apart or if batman went on a holiday just after he interrogated the joker like in a standard narrative you really should have the hero keep on their quest for the whole duration of the story like yeah in the third act they can have their moment of doubt but he does have to stay on target and not just pop back for tea with mum and dad. You know, if this was a studio film with the comedians and boards, Rupert would land on the Tropic Island and then with Sailor Sam, maybe, be, you know, tagging along as a sidekick, he would continue with his quest with this being a minor bump in the road. Also, I just want to point out, this is like in the middle of the story, not in the third act or anything like that. So again, quite strange. Although this is coming from the man who's you know, Day in the Life adventure musical was resolved by looking in a broom closet and finding a man who had fallen asleep thinking it was a toilet. So, yeah, this isn't exactly going to be structured in the way others would. I mean, it's charming and different and silly, but it doesn't feel like cinema. You know, it's stuff like this that probably meant the production was as laboured as it was and took as long as it was to flesh out and likely resulted in him not being able to do it in the first place. Hopefully... This is something that Netflix could just sort out and do properly. Oh, if, if it was announced that Netflix was doing the Rupert the Bear movie with McCartney's soundtrack, that would just make my year. Of course, I, I should also address that there is an element that this could all just be, you know, something inside Rupert's own mind. These are just the adventures that a child is making up in his own head. And the fact that he goes back to his home halfway through the, through the narrative could simply be him going home for lunch. And I think it would be fab if they could hint at that without confirming it. Yeah, I think that'd be quite fun. Also, folks, before we move on, I do want to point out that this story may not have been totally left unused by Paul. 
We have recently touched on Tropic Island Hum on this show and the idea of a Paul McCartney character crashing on a tropical island and meeting colourful characters does sound like another major plot point in Rupert's tale. It's funny, you know, Rupert the Bear leads to Tropic Island Hum, which then leads to High in the Clouds, and it feels like Paul is trying to crack that one iconic children's tale that he knows he has buried in his mind. It's a shame that we can't mix Rupert the Bear, Wirral the Squirrel, and Grand Dude in the same film together. You know, the real MCU, McCartney Cinematic Universe. Right, folks, now that I've covered everything I could possibly find about this, you know, far more backstory than I ever thought I would have been able to touch on for a Paul McCartney Rupert the Bear movie episode, I think it's now high time we got onto the bit that you're all waiting for. Let's go through the Rupert the Bear bootleg album. Ooh, this is gonna be fun. And starting off with this look at Rupert Bear, we have a song which could not be more appropriately titled, really. This is Rupert's Song, version number one. Okay, folks, i got to admit, there was a little trepidation at the prospect of a song literally called Rupert's Song. Like, how on the nose was this going to be, and how much musicality could Paul get out of a bear child who goes on whimsical non-adventures? Well, it turns out a whole lot more than I ever could have expected, as this little ditty, whilst not being an outright McCartney classic, certainly has pangs of it, and that is more than enough for me. Rupert's Song version 1 has already wormed its way into my brain and in the weeks leading up to this episode I've caught myself singing the chorus to myself on more than a few occasions. It's an excellent theme for this whole soundtrack and film to be based around and I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been repurposed as a theme for some future Rupert the Bear animated kid show or something because you know that kids would be just roaring this chorus it's easy to pick up on it's not very complicated and it's oh so it's just great isn't it the main instrumental work on this song is going to be rather emblematic of the rest of the album in that it's going to tread that fine line between rough unfinished demo and fully realized studio outtake with paul playing all of the instruments Of course, being that Paul is a capable one-man band, we get all the trimmings here with a song comprised of acoustic guitar, which he was lightly written on, synthy orchestras, electric guitar, bit of bass, and either very soft drums or even a drum machine. Now, as we know, the track listing is going to be directly chronological following the events 
of the story. And so it is somewhat easy to imagine what kind of scenes each song is meant to be set to. This is the introductory song to the Rupert album, and so, in all likelihood, this is the song where we would be introduced to Rupert himself and the world he lives in. Like, as a McCartney fan, it is instantly recognisable as his work, which is already a massive positive for me, and I would almost certainly be seeing any finished version of this film for the music most of all, and to have Paul not compromise on his style is both reassuring and also incredibly poor when you think about it but yeah you know this scene is clearly going to be set over sweeping shots of nutwood establishing you know the area in which rupert lives we're going to see the white cast of characters walking about the town or doing their gardening or baking cakes that kind of thing and during the chorus of course that is when rupert is going to come into frame what surprised me about this one was the absolutely heavenly electric guitar work. Instead of Paul trying to be badass or cool as we see on his rockers, or technically impressive as we see on his acoustic pickers, we instead get these incredibly subtle lyrical flutters of notes. I mean, the tone matches that carefree nature that he's going for, and it's very unique in terms of his guitar song work like there is no moment in his career that sounds anything like this you know they almost sound like bird calls or other wildlife that may be around Rupert you know they are somehow far more natural sounding than many other electric guitar parts that I've heard and yeah the whole thing's just sublime and the fact that Paul has never really played like this before or since immediately makes the whole Rupert projects stand out and feel all the more important in his wider canon. Having covered so much Back to the Egg era material and unreleased tracks of late, I have actually become quite enamoured with the sound of Paul's synthetic orchestral work, and we get it in spades here. It creates such an idyllically tranquil and serene ambiance, which is totally in keeping with the world of Rupert. And, you know, of course, makes it nice and friendly for the kids as well. Though, with all of these songs, I would err towards Paul doing it for the sake of the song and the thematics than for pandering to any particular type of audience. You know, this is the kind of song that he knows should be introducing Rupert. And these synths appropriately make everything feel very sunny and, you know, just through sound alone, he's able to convey that this is the perfect day for an adventure and you can't wait to set off on it. Paul is also really adept with the tech at this point, whereby you do struggle to tell what is synth and what is real. And whilst I am certain there was never a session where Paul got an orchestra to do anything for Rupert outside of We All Stand Together, I have to ponder as to whether these synths are meant to be placeholders until he actually got a proper orchestra in, maybe with George Martin to, you know, do all of that properly. But... I kind of hope that isn't the case because I really do like the the dissonance you get from this kind of natural, idyllic, wild world and then have it be conveyed so earnestly and honestly through a synthetic orchestra. It just gives the whole thing a slightly unique and different feel that I'm all about. Of course, Paul with keys, it's always 
again, they remind me of McCartney too, so I can't help but enjoy that. Unfortunately, though, like many often cold cuts, a reliable transcription of the lyrics are not available, online or otherwise, and so I'm forced to make certain assumptions about what Paul is singing in the verses. It's not a finalised recording, and so the layering and mixing could be a little better, but you can kind of make out what he's saying, you can definitely tell what he's going for, and you can kind of guess what it is about anyway. Now, it doesn't matter all that much about what is being specifically sung, and that is because, like most McCartney productions, it's sung oh so fucking well. For the song, he gives us this utterly delectable soft story time delivery where it's just so completely endearing to me, you know? Like, is there anything better than having Paul introduce you to this whimsical world of Englishness? Well, it's having him do it in a way that makes it feel like he's literally just talking to you. That's great. It's so inclusive and wholesome. And having him kick back and do something soft and in falsetto is such a joy as it becomes rarer and rarer from this point onwards. What's even better here is that it's not just Paul, and we do get to indulge in Linda appearing on this track, and during the height of her Ram Harmony powers, no less. Like, having her there for the chorus is not only like incredibly classically McCartney-esque, but it's also incredibly heartwarming. Not only is Dad reading you a bedtime story, but Mum is also there as well. <laughs> and yeah, that chorus. It is stupendously uplifting and enlivening. And it has also some of the most McCartney lyrics ever. And you can make these out a lot more than the rest of the song, so I'll just run through it now. Rupert will be singing a song. Rupert will be running along. Rupert will be singing a song of love. Now, as I've already stated, I'm no expert on the lore of Rupert the Bear, and whilst there are more than ample example images of Rupert running along, which I'm fine with, I do struggle to picture Rupert singing songs, especially singing songs of love, which does feel more like a Paul thing. Of course, though, this is a Paul project, and I think the blend of McCartney and Rupert could not be more apparent in the idea of Rupert singing songs of love. I'm not having a go. I think it's really touching, and it's a genuinely heartfelt lyric that kids would definitely enjoy and like to sing, but I think this is emblematic of Paul's own proclivities and sensibilities bleeding into the project. So yeah, folks, who'd have thunk that such an enjoyable little song was tucked away in the deepest, darkest corners of the McCartney canon? Well, everyone, I'm glad to tell you that this isn't even close to the best of what is to come. Honestly, we've got some cracking stuff ahead, so let's just press right on. And, having pressed forth, we have a song that is genuinely one of my favourite titles ever, as it's just so gosh darn cute! This is Tippy Tippy Toes.
So, after a song that lyrically and vocally sounded incredibly McCartney-esque, we now have a piano instrumental that could not sound more McCartney-esque if it tried. As I'm sure is the case with the majority of you out there, I have a real weakness for a McCartney sat at the piano doing melodic lyrical riff shtick and an even softer spot for instrumental exclusive ones. So yeah, this was always going to go down well with me. I mean, this one really should go down well with everyone, as it is the brightest, most joyful, most upbeat melody I've heard from McCartney in a while. And that's saying something. Like, this thing is shamelessly positive, and I cannot help but feel inexplicably better about life, the universe, everything the moment I hear it. I think maybe it's because of all the good weather we've been having here in the UK at the time of recording, but to me, this is the second song in a row that also conveys to the audience that this is a bright, sunny day and nothing's going to go wrong. It also gets pretty epic during certain parts where you get a chance to take in the majesty of nature and the perfect little world that Rupert lives in. It's more, it's more of kind of that rule Britannia Paul that we got in songs like Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, which he likely composed around the same time as this, and it's just great. Then you also have these really tranquil little breakdowns in the melody, and knowing McCartney and Dunbar like I do, it feels like this will be scoring shots of ducks in a pond or blossoms flying through the sky. He does this a lot on the album, where more so than on any of, the, of his Beatles soundtrack albums, he's writing music that will complement visuals on film more than writing hits that will more or less work with any imagery because they're hits. You know, he's writing for the spec here and he's knocking it out of the park. Also, in those serene moments, you get a subtle bit of keyboard work to accentuate the serenity of it all. And whilst I reckon the whole album is just Paul doing everything himself, there's a part of me that hopes that this is, in fact, our gal, the lovely Linda. They aren't the most complicated parts ever, perfectly within her skill set at the time, especially in the studio. And... If she's singing on this album, then hell, she could certainly be doing a bit of key work. This is also one of those instrumental songs where the melody is so strong that it entirely hints at an unheard set of lyrics to match with them. Like, the part of the song that goes, do, 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 do. Like, to me, it has the exact same number of syllables of it being, on your tippy tippy toes, tippy tippy toes. And yeah, that could be a bit of pareidolia on my part, but the musical phrasing present has the exact kind of charming brightness and endearing cutesiness that I would imagine from a song called Tippy Tippy Toes. It would not surprise me at all to find out that this is a song that originally was written with words that became an instrumental over time in an opposite way to something like Ooh You. And I'm not saying that like this is a bad thing either. The important thing to take away from this is that Paul is so bloody lyrical and expressive within his piano melodies that you almost feel encouraged to sing along, even though there aren't any words to do so. It's very whistleable, shall, shall, shall we say. Now, before I go on to the next one, something I have to point out about this song is that parts of the melody really remind me of the theme of Thomas the Tank Engine, or Thomas and Friends, as is known in other territories. Now, normally this wouldn't warrant a direct comparison, but the fact that Ringo Starr was the narrator here in the UK and it's a children's project, I just had to do a little side-by-side -side here. Please indulge me. <laughs> Thank you. 
on, you have to have heard the slight similarities there, right? I'm not going mad, am I? Well, if you want another oddly strange link between these two, that theme was actually written by Junior Campbell, who was a founding member of Marmalade, aka the band that took their cover of Obladi Oblada to number one here in the UK in January of 69. Anyway, in conclusion, I would say that we are two for two on this album so far. I mean, maybe if I had reviewed this at the start of the show cycle, I would have been less kind, but now that I live and breathe all facets of Paul and his strange little interests, I can say that so far this has been wonderful, pure McCartney. Okay, now we move on to a song whose title reminds me of that picture of Linda from the gatefold of the Give My Regards to Broad Street vinyl album. This is Flying Horses. Now, after a song that lyrically and vocally sounded incredibly McCartney-esque and a song that was clearly a McCartney piano lick, we now have a song that is oh so clearly a solo McCartney electric guitar instrumental. Being an instrumental, the whole thing is very reminiscent of his work on McCartney 1, and despite Ram mostly featuring two session lead guitarists, there's also something about the raw, energetic, playful guitar here that also made it feel very Ram-like in quality also. Now, considering that this music was likely written between 69 and 74, this makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, we talk a lot about lost McCartney rock tunes and how McCartney never really plays heavily all that often. And here, on a Rupert the Fucking Bear soundtrack album, we have what can only be described as one of the most straight-up, rowdy, aggressive, unrelenting, hard-rocking McCartney instrumentals ever. It comes right out of nowhere especially considering the last two songs, and the fact that Rupert is riding a winged horse, it almost feels like it's taken right out of one of those heavy metal pulp magazines from the 80s. And how bloody cool is that? Like, I was not expecting this kind of song at all, especially here, and for it to appear on this soundtrack in this way is quite simply one of the most exciting Macca moves ever. Yeah, folks, I cannot stress enough how surprisingly badass and kick-ass this song actually is. The tone McCartney gets out of his guitar is fucking awesome. It's heavy and dirty, and you get loads of little elements in the melody for you to pick out and enjoy, from those really low notes that really accentuate the whole epic feeling to those really strained higher notes where it just feels effortlessly grand and large scale, which doesn't really fit the idea of Rupert the Bear on paper, 
and yet McCartney manages to make it work. And it, it also just really highlights his ability to just rock out, you know, when he wants to. In fact, the opening of this song and the main riff, to me, sounds very similar to something like Too Many People, with that constantly rising and descending, almost down the rabbit hole feel to it. You know, this is when Rupert is going off on his adventure, so he does have to create something that feels like something out of the norm is happening. This is outside of Rupert's normal world, songs like Tippy Toes and Rupert's song. This is him going out into the wider world. And it totally fits. What also really sells the grandeur and the scale of this song, almost making it sound borderline prog-rocky, is the way the guitar harmonises with the synthetic orchestral stuff. Again, Paul really knows how to make these synthetic orchestras sound very naturalistic here, and he manages to deliver a very fittingly cinematic backing to this uncompromising rock riff. Of course, we all know Paul has a penchant for using non-instrumental elements in the layering of his songs, and here, with Flying Horses, we get one of the very best examples of this. For the entire run of the track, we have the sound of galloping hooves underscoring the epic rock tableau. Now, this is interesting, first and foremost, because it acts as one of the most unique kind of percussion elements I think anyone has ever thought to include in a song, and its implementation is borderline genius. Now, the song does sound like it is running away with you and that you are going at breakneck speed, so, you know, it is conveying that perfectly. You know, you can almost feel the wind in your hair. It's fucking awesome. I mean, there's something primal in us as humans due to our long association with horses. That means the sound of them thundering across the land is just instantly exciting and evocative and majestic. Horses rock, okay? It's also cool because of Paul and Linda's ongoing relationship uh, with and love of all things equine. You know, Linda had her Appaloosas and would make two films about them and Paul would do the scores for them. So... That's fun in terms of trivia, but what I like most about the use of hooves in this scene is that these are meant to be flying horses, meaning that aside from the initial run-up to get them off the ground, there really wouldn't be all that much galloping now, would there? And I don't know whether this is straight up just an oversight from Paul, or whether the galloping was just meant to kind of start off the song, and he simply liked the way he sounded when he heard it, and decided to keep it in. Who knows? Interestingly, all the versions of this song that I can find end with what is quite clearly the opening acoustic strumming for the next song, and it hints at this song leading right into it, like seamlessly, a la something from Sgt. Pepper. Now, I don't know whether the cut on the bootleg is needed for the narration and maybe possible dialogue for a scene change, I don't know, or whether it's just meant to be a teaser for the next track. Either way, it's strange, and I kind of like it. So yeah, folks, this one was a bit of a surprise, to say the least, but we are three for three on this album. I love just how much of a left-field curveball this was to the proceedings, and I appreciate how brave McCartney was in including this type of song on this type of album for this type of film. Again, it's an incredibly McCartney-esque move. I love how it fits into the wider album as a whole, and I want to mention one last time, it kicks fucking ass. Okay, folks, it's now time for us to indulge in one of my personal favourite aspects of Paul's past, which is likely one of your least favourites, 
And that is, and I will phrase it in terms of a question. Just how is Kanye West related to the Rupert the Bear bootleg album? I guess you'll just have to wait and find out. This is When the Wind is Blowing. Folks, I know for a fact that I've covered the next two songs that we're going to talk about, The Palace of the King of the Birds and Sunshine Sometime, on the show before, albeit briefly. Though, after doing a quick back check through my notes, as far as I can tell, I have not actually talked about When the Wind is Blowing before, which is crazy, because it's it's a pretty important song. And I think the only time I've mentioned it was on my Kanye West episode which, first of all, is hilarious, but it's also pretty lax on my part, as it probably should have been in Hot Hits and Cold Cuts Part 1, and we've just released Part 6. So yeah, let's take this opportunity to discuss this song properly. When the Wind is Blowing is literally one of the OG solo McCartney compositions, and it goes all the way back to the Ram recording sessions in 71, probably even further. And for the longest time, it had been officially unreleased, though... Unlike the majority of stuff on this bootleg, it did make its way to official legitimacy with its inclusion as a bonus track on the archive reissue of Wildlife. Apparently, there's another version that was recorded by Wings in 78, but the only ones I can find online are all on the same bootlegs as the Back to the Egg sessions, and so I reckon it's actually all a bit of a cock-up, as the Rupert the Bear session stuff was around this time, but I think it's just been slapped on Wings albums, and so I don't think there are 1978 Wings band recordings of anything on this album. I think it is all solo Paul. Also, this track was going to appear on one of the versions of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, but we all know how that went. Now, in 1999, during an interview with Michael Parkinson on the Namesake's own chat show on ITV here in the UK, Paul played a few notes of When the Wind is Blowing and explained how he was inspired to write the song by looking at a Picasso art print called The Old Guitarist. And you know what, I'll let Paul himself explain the whole thing. Let's play the clip. I tell you, once I remember when uh, Linda and I had just had our first baby, which was Mary, and uh, we already had Heather, but our first baby together was Mary. And uh, Mary was born and um, I was at the hospital basically the whole week, you know, just while Linda recovered and took it easy, and we liked the chips in this place too. <laughs> so we were sitting around all week and just enjoying just having had this lovely baby. And um, there was this Picasso print on the wall uh, of an old man playing a guitar. And I looked at it all week, and towards the end of the week I thought, what chord's he playing? You know, I'm a guitar player, what, what is he playing? And I noticed he just had two fingers here. 
You get that chord there, guys? Just two fingers there. And so I thought, well, I'll try and see, you know, what the chord is, and if it sounds any good. So, so ooh, that's nice, you know. So then I tried to I used that as the inspiration right. and tried to write a song that only had used two fingers. Right. So I'll play a bit of that. Please. Note carefully, two fingers all the time. <laughs> my hand never leaves my wrist. First of all, how cool is it that a song from around 1970-71 was still on Paul's mind enough for him to be able to turn it into a party trick like that almost 30 years later? I mean, the fact that he can do it on a whim like that Okay, there were rehearsals, but the fact that he can do it pitch perfect like that means that it has to be a low-key personal favourite of his, right? However, that's not the end of the story, as yes, this song would crop up again in 2014 when Paul met up with hip-hop legend Kanye West for a secret collaboration. And you had Paul inspiring Kanye to write the song Only One, Paul cooked up the track four or five seconds for him pretty much on the spot, but... During their downtime, Paul was explaining the story that you just heard there to Kanye and played a basic version of When the Wind is Blowing slash Two Fingers and that inspired Kanye to write a song called All Day. Though Paul may not have even known that he was even being recorded, let alone the fact that the song would go on to be used in such a way. He explained as such in a 2016 interview with Rolling Stone saying... I was telling Kanye that story. I whistled it for him. His engineer was recording it, and it went into the pool of ingredients. Kanye was just collecting things. We weren't going to sit down and write a song so much as talk and spark ideas off each other. It was only when I got this song that I went, I get it, he's taken my little whistly thing. It returned to me as an urban hip-hop riff. I love that record. Now, for any of you who steer clear of Kanye, or may not have been brave enough to check out my woefully under-downloaded Kanye West episode, I am now about to play you the part of the song that most obviously samples when the wind is blowing. You came undone. You've been right. 
Yeah, I know, right? How mad is that? It's even crazier when you listen to the whole song, as it becomes an almost incomprehensible task to work out how Kanye built up that phantasmagoria out of such a simple melody. But then you remember that Kanye is a slightly unhinged genius, and it all kind of makes sense. Anyway, that's everything you need to know about the background of this song, and now we can actually talk about it. First of all, I just want to point out how cool it is that we're four songs into this album, and each one has been completely different. Like, this Lost McCartney album has more variety than a lot of material that he does choose to put out. It's clear that Paul didn't want to just do a standard children's score, and that move is far more interesting to me, as he is putting his own interests and the soundtrack first, and what people might be expecting of him or anyone else undertaking this task in second. It's safe to say that there really would have been something for every type of McCartney fan on this record. In terms of thematics and where we are in the film, this is a true moment of calm before the storm. That's a joke based on a song title we haven't come to yet. So yeah, whereas the last song was Rupert taking off on the horses and it's all exciting, you know, kicking off the adventure... This is clearly the point where the flying horses level out and we get to take in some scenic vistas of the clouds. Again, I can easily picture the Jeff Dunbar animation in my mind already. Also, the main villain is called the Great North Wind, so perhaps maybe this is meant to be a little setup for the villain too, or maybe this is meant to be the kind of peaceful melody that's meant to display and convey how the wind is supposed to be before the villain is introduced, you know? But what about the song, Sam? What about the song? Well, firstly, I just want to point out just how heavenly it is. I mean, if you thought Tippy Tippy Toes was serene, well, this song makes it look like a mosh pit at a metal gig. Like, this song is a literal lullaby, as I quite literally start to go to sleep when I listen to it. And not in a I-find-this-boring way, but in the way that it's so fucking peaceful and relaxed that I can't help but start to head off to the land of Nod. It's crazy that a song like this, where the artist is only allowed to use two fingers, therefore cutting themselves off from the most uh, rich and advanced chords, meaning he's only got around 13 to use, that it's able to be as comprehensively whole and complete and together as it is. Like, I would have expected this to have been rather basic and simplistic, but instead this song is as fully realised and rich and complex and full of strong melody as any other McCartney work. Had it not been mentioned that only two fingers were used, I would have just guessed that this was a regular guitar song under regular songwriting circumstances. There's also a second acoustic guitar that Paul adds in for the lead part, and this is where the stuff really does start to get quite fairy tale magical. It's him doing his finger-licking, finger-picking, and it just it's just gorgeous, isn't it? He flawlessly elevates the strumming and adds certain accentuations to the chords, making it into more of a typical melody rather than just a strummer. And he just underscores it with all these lovely flourishes. Like, the song is deceptively technical when it wants to be, which I think is quite cool. There's also some really fun bass work in this song also. Though, rather than doing like a counter melody like he normally does... Like the lead guitar, it's all in service of the main melody, and again, it it just gives those punctuations where needed. It's a nice reserved McCartney bass line, actually. Also, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the adroit percussion on this song. I have a real soft spot for that kind of drumming, whereby the drummer's either just tapping the stick on its side or hitting the rim of the drum kit, and I think that's exactly what this is. And I don't think we've heard Paul himself play this way before, 
which, if nothing else, is a pretty unique piece of trivia. Now, whilst this technically isn't instrumental, you do get some hints of a vocal track here, though it's intentionally obscured from the listener. Though, this isn't like our lane, where the vocals have been poorly mixed unintentionally. No, this has been done for intentional effect. It's all part of that dreamlike atmosphere, where you can't tell if you're falling asleep or waking up. Honestly, though, I love the mystery surrounding such whispered, almost hidden lyrics. All you really can make out is the title itself, and it's almost like McCartney's voice is the, on the wind, or the wind itself being carried off into the distance. It's truly affecting stuff. It's also really funny when you go on the Wildlife uh, album on Spotify and you look at what the, the lyrics are, and it just says, da, 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 when the wind is blowing, da, 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 which is also quite funny. <laughs> then also you have the whistling, and when that comes in, it again, it turns a gorgeous song into a magical one. Like, I always love non-yeah-yeah type of choruses, maybe like a, a do-do-do or a boo-up-shoo-up. And Paul Whistling here is just so effortlessly sublime, isn't it? Like, there's no other way you'd rather have this song. It's perfect. But yeah, that was an awful lot of description and information on a song from the Rupert the Bear album. But, you know, I guess we were making up for lost time because we should have spoken about it in detail before, really. But I'm glad we've given When the Wind is Blowing its fair due. And I'm even more glad that I got to talk about Kanye again and further glad still that this song fucking rocks. Next up, and we have what I imagine is going to be a fairly familiar song for some of you Beatle fans out there, aka, like, all of you, especially those of you who have been through the Let It Be Nagra reels. This next little ditty is called The Palace of the King of the Birds. Okay, everyone, on to another instrumental, which, outside of the family way, is a very unique McCartney experience indeed. However, whereas the McCartney album is accused of having instrumentals for filler, it totally makes sense here, as in all likelihood, these instrumentals will have been edited together with dialogue or other sound effects in the film, and so having too many tracks with lyrics would create some irksome issues for the scripts and animators alike. Luckily, Paul already had a cracking instrumental in his back pocket, for a while now. Right, for those of you who know your Fab Four bootlegs, you will know that The Palace of the King of the Birds is an unreleased studio song that hails from the Let It Be sessions. It's funny, I never knew what was going on with that very specific title. Like, I always knew that there must have been more information going on behind the scenes. And now, being that we're doing an entire Rupert episode, I finally got to find out. And 
Knowing that the idea for Rupert was first conceived during the Beatles era, and in doing the research for this episode, I found a couple of very specific drawings of Rupert the Bear in the literal palace of the King of the Birds, means that, yeah, the mystery's kind of solved, I guess. I don't know whether the title for the Beatles demo was given specifically by McCartney or not, or whether it was added by a staff member or a bootlegger, or even called that just like retrospectively once this was recorded. But on the other hand, I am pretty certain that all the Let It Be era stuff was catalogued properly. And so I think this whole song is just a bit of a joke, and Paul getting to slip a Rupert the Bear reference right under the other three Beatles' noses. You know, just to amuse himself. Hey, you know what? Let's have a quick listen to the original Beatles rendition of this track. pretty shocking to see how much this song did and didn't change from the Let It Be sessions, whether this was recorded in 71 or 78 or 84. It's clear that McCartney was confident that this instrumental was perfectly adequate as it was. I mean, you do have to remove Harrison's guitar noodling and Ringo's drumming, you know, more the side effect of this being a jam rather than a, a proper recording session. You know, the melody and the atmospheric key work is still there and the piece is instantly recognisable for what it is. Though, when you listen to the original McCartney demo that he brought and played for the band originally, it gets even closer to what we get with the Rupert version. Let's hear that now as well. it it's clear that in McCartney's mind at least this song is supposed to have a far more simple arrangement and the only reason the other one sounded the way it did is because the other fabs needed something to do but anyway let's talk about the version of this song that McCartney did compose for one Rupert Bear and contrary to what one might think up for a song about the palace of a king i.e bright brassy fanfare with a massive orchestra Paul instead's to wind it back and do something very relaxed and give us a rather languid melody that feels way more in keeping with when the wind is blowing to the point whereby it feels that when the wind is blowing is meant to directly lead into this song and rather than be faced with a kind of pompous bombasticism instead we're 
meant to just take in the, the quiet majesty of the Palace of the King of the Birds. And, you know, to be fair, most birds don't like loud sounds, and the music they make is generally very soft and delicate. It's all meant to be high up in the clouds. So, again, Paul really is on point in terms of theming here. Again, this is another wonderful lullaby kind of track, and you do start to wonder whether how much of this album is, you know, meant to be for Paul and how much of it is meant to be for Paul's kids. Though, despite being as reserved as it is, it's still pretty darn catchy. You know, this is Mac at the piano we're talking about here, so you really can't go wrong, can you? The melody itself is, you know, memorable, and it, it just sounds so natural coming out of Paul. Like, it's just flowing out of it. And when he gets to the second movement, where he gets a little more intricate, the whole thing becomes effortlessly canorous. You know, you can tell that this is a melody that's been in his head for years. He's getting it out of his system, and he just nails it. There's also these little moments of vocalisation, those which is as close as it gets to like a regular royal sounding kind of track, though it almost sounds like a comedic parody of it, like there's a kind of goofy charm to it there. Though, once again, I do definitely pick out Linda in the mix, which is always nice to hear. But yeah, not too much to say about this one. It's a surprisingly short composition compared to the others on this album, being just over a minute and a half. Though, for such a short melody to have lasted in McCartney's mind since, you know, before the Let It Be sessions, I imagine, again, like When the Wind Is Blowing, it's clear that this is one that meant a lot to him and one that he wanted to get right for this project. You know, it's really interesting that this whole album might just be made up of not cold cuts, but songs that just Paul couldn't quite get onto other albums. Not ones that he didn't want to include because they weren't good enough. Ones that were good enough to include, but weren't right tonally or thematically. And this is the best avenue for all of these songs to be released. You know, if they did get released. Still, I think Paul did all right by the King of the Birds in this one. And now we come on to the song that basically inspired my whole motivation to do this episode. I'm very excited to finally talk about this one, folks. It's called Sunshine Sometime. So yeah, folks, this has become a pretty important song for me of late. Until I was gifted with the 30-volume set of McCartney bootlegs, I basically had to listen to this exclusively on YouTube, and that's exactly what I've been doing, just over and over and over again. It always comes up in my recommended videos on, due to the algorithm now, and quite simply, it's because I'm crazy about this song. Without any feeling of over-exaggeration or irony, not only is this 
signed one of the greatest all-time McCartney cold cuts, but generally one of the top McCartney compositions of all time. Hands down, no questions asked. Very few songs in the McCartney catalogue are able to be so instantly magical and divine as this. Everything about it works in perfect harmony to create a wholly gentle, nostalgic, introspective and serene atmosphere that is so wonderful you never want to leave it. Of course, barring a couple of songs, this is a uniquely quiet McCartney album, and with Sunshine Sometime we get the paragon of McCartney eschewing his loud, showman-like style of songwriting, and instead adopt a simple charm. Like, it's so refreshing to hear Paul in this completely laid-back world, and I think what makes this song so evocative is the idea that Paul sounds like he's genuinely at peace here, which is something we all want, especially during the Ram period. Speaking of Ram, for those of you with a good memory, this is another song that we actually have covered before, though unlike The Palace of the King of the Birds, we actually covered it on the episode that we should have covered it on, rather than on a catch-up one, and the original Sunshine Sometime is likely to be pretty well known by this point, as it featured on the Ram Archive Collection re-release. Yes, folks. And why is that? Well because it was recorded around the time of Ram. Though, unlike When the Wind is Blowing, they actually put it on the right re-release album. But yeah, look, over half a decade into this podcast, everyone, and my theory that all of the best stuff comes from the Ram era, it's still ringing truer than ever. Though, the version that we got during the Ram era was simply an instrumental. This is the one I was familiar with for several years, and the moment I found out that there was a version with lyrics, I lost my fucking mind. Now, despite the fact that I had heard this song innumerable times and adored that little bit of storytime dialogue from Paul at the end, it seems the main version actually truncated a bit at the beginning, but fortunately the full rip of the Rupert album that we played earlier managed to fill in those gaps for me. However, learning about where this song takes place is probably my only gripe in that the idea that this is supposed to be the period once the, the great bird's had his wings frozen and has to drop Rupert off on a tropical island. Like, you know, the only thing that really hints at this taking place at such a locale is the presence of the sun and the carefree atmosphere. Now, if that's all there's meant to be in terms of connections, then Paul has achieved his ob- ob- objective. But having heard Tropic Island hum, all I can think of now is that song taking place here instead. It comes across as if Paul had a song called Sunshine Sometime in his back pocket and then either changed the story to include it or picked an existing Rupert story elements that he could include it because of the title. Either way, it feels slightly off, and I think I would prefer this song to take place either like in Nutwood or some other locale. And if Netflix were to remake, well, actually make this movie, then I would be totally fine with Tropic Island Hum taking its place in the narrative, as long as it appeared somewhere else in the movie, of course, because despite my narrative gripes, it's still the best track on the album. And let's talk about it. First and foremost, I want to discuss the guitar in this song. I can't tell if it's like a soft electric or an acoustic maybe with an amp, but either way, that nostalgic rose-tinted tone that it achieves is perfect. 
The guitar in the song sounds as relaxed as we do, which is great, you know, kind of conveying that. The playing is totally emblematic of Paul's more subtle and subdued early gig guitar work, you know, again, very McCartney 1, which is always to die for. Again, very unflashy and dreamlike, and it's all fitting in with the tone of this album. It's all still very storybook and bedtimey. Though, now that I think about it, it does have a certain Caribbean feel to it, in the sense that it could almost be like a steel string. So maybe I was wrong about this earlier, about not being totally in theme. But yeah, I really just dig how Paul is able to convey so much emotion and implied emotion in so few notes. Again, brevity, form of wit. There's also this little bit of acoustic right at the end, which is thrown in there to kind of double up on the notes for the final run-through of the song. Very reminiscent of those descending acoustic guitar notes on Bluebird, kind of the same trick there. In terms of the percussion, again, I just love how simple the whole thing is, because uh, all we have are the claves, or claves. Well, they sound like claves, claves anyway. It still could be a drum machine. But, you know, I just love how it's two notes of the entire song, just those... You know, it's just so atmospheric and expressive, and it's just two notes. How cool is that? Now, we really haven't spoken too much about bass on this album, but this song is the highlight. This is Paul doing his usual bassy business in the sense that he's playing a playful, creative, bouncy counter-melody to complement the main tune. I mean, that first bass movement when it comes in, that is literally one of my favourite Macca bass moments ever. The way it just comes lolloping into the proceedings is such a burst of joy, especially since we don't get another moment like it on the album. It's an equally tranquil bass line, you know, it doesn't like cut through the mix or anything and make things too lively or anything like that. It's still, again, got that kind of dreamy thing going on with it. Then we come to the vocals, which, as you may have guessed, I also think are just sublime. Like the rest of the song, we have Paul in quiet mode here, and that hushed, there, there kind of whisper that he does is so fucking enchanting. Like, you know, I've already used the term storybook and fairy tale, but, you know, this really does sound like Paul stood over a baby's crib or in a child's bedroom and he's sending them off to sleep. Like, he couldn't possibly sound more gentle and caring if he tried and he really does sell the lyrics he's singing like you want to go back to the place he's singing of and the sunshine has never before sounded so appealing especially being a topic that Paul has covered a lot in the past speaking of which vocals are nothing without a complimentary set of lyrics and once you start going through the words of this song you can't help but notice just how obviously ram era it is it's clear right from the get-go that this is within McCartney's commonly used theme of escapism, and as with all of the songs from this genre, it's full of the most earnestly simple and easy-to-empathise-with ideals ever, as well as giving you a little insight into Paul's mind at the time. I mean, we have back to where the memory lingers, back to where the sun shines, waves are breaking over my finger, yes, it's been a long time. Home is where the water is waiting for the band that plays in the sunshine, oh yeah, yes it's been a long time. Back to where the living is easy, I can hear the song in the evening, stones are shining in the water, yes it's been a long time. Like, the world Paul is creating here is just, oh how could you not want that? I mean who wouldn't want to go back to the place he's describing? The sun and the water of course are 
archetypal Makani images here and he still makes them feel new and fresh to the listener. But you, 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 you can hear so many McCartney songs in these lyrics. Like you can hear bits of Bluebird or Heaven on a Sunday or hell, even Heart of the Country. You know, this is Paul doing escapism. It's one of his most underutilized subject matters and he does it so well. I mean, particularly you've got that line, back to where the memory lingers. And that really inflamed my imagination. Like, it's such a deft way to say back to that place that I think about a lot and, you know, a much more poetic way of, put, of putting it. And I like the idea that maybe the memory is something separate from us consciously as people. And maybe he's talking about something of a subconscious desire to return to somewhere. And like many other McCartney songs about a destination, it may not actually be a physical space, but instead maybe a mental or spiritual destination. And, you know, the image of the sunshine is still apt here because, you know, it can definitely symbolise like inner peace or just wherever you want to get to in life. Again, this isn't Paul reinventing his wheel or anything, but he's certainly using his own tropes to the best of his ability and making something that very appropriate for the subject of the song is familiar and welcoming. I also like the idea of the sunshine only being sometimes. Like, there's a big chance that this was chosen just for the sake of rhyming, but I don't know, there's something about the sunshine not being permanent or guaranteed that makes it more precious, and maybe something just as simple as the sun shining can take you back to a special place in your mind. Again, probably think about this way too much, but that's what happens when you love a song as much as I do. So yeah, folks, that is Sunshine Sometime, the song for whom this whole episode was made. I mean, I probably would have eventually gotten around to Rupert, but possibly not with the same kind of excitement and vigour. And, you know, this is the song that set up my emotional connection to all of this material. So regardless of whether you're liking this episode or not, you can thank this song for it being released right now. Next up, folks, and we have one of the funniest and utterly charming songs that I was introduced to in the doing of this episode. This is C slash Cornish Wafer. comforting to see that even in the most obscure of Paul McCartney projects that they are home to a twin titled song composed of two seemingly entirely different songs being stitched together. Yes everyone, as you may have guessed, the songs here are C and Cornish Wafer together. Right away I want to address that this song is a runaway success for me. I mean, having recently covered After the Ball, Million Miles, another two-parter, with one part seemingly being a distantly seashore related kind of number, I can only say that comparing the two, 
would be like comparing apples and oranges. C and Cornish Wafer succeed in almost every place where After the Ball and Million Miles fail. Both songs are linked instrumentally, lyrically, thematically, and actually blend together rather seamlessly. Also, there are actually two songs that are pleasant and fun to listen to, which the former is certainly not. Now, rather unexpectedly, the C part of this song actually appears on the 1974 piano tape bootleg that McCartney recorded at home. Of course, the Rupert project goes several years before this, and so it makes you wonder how much of this album was written after the Ram era and, you know, drawn out between, say, like, 72 and 84. Like, was it the case that if there ever was a song Paul didn't know what to do with it, it would go on the Rupert album? Or, conversely, were there any cases whereby he wrote songs that he wanted to go on albums, but they were betrothed to Rupert instead? God, someone needs to interview Paul about this properly. But yeah, let's give a quick listen to the talk about C, which I'm going to call the the A-plot of this song. This is the line share of the runtime, and it's perfect at conveying the slow, ominous journey that seafaring surely is. It has a certain respectful seriousness, given that it is, you know, the sea, but there is a certain dignified splendour to the whole thing too, like it is quite marvellous in that sense. You can imagine again the Jeff Dunbar vistas being drawn here. Lyrically, the song begins with McCartney just singing the word sea over and over again, and there was a part of me that thought slash hoped that it might literally just be a one-word song, which would have been hilarious and interesting at the same time. But no, there are a few more lines, but being that this is a bootleg, again, some of them are quite hard to work out. But there's one line about landing with a slap on the shore, which is an expression that I've never heard before, and it must be a real one. It's too silly not to be. Still, I do enjoy how simple the lyrics are, you know, again, it's meant to be for kids, and Paul captures a certain poetic melancholy in that droning, almost mantra-like repetition. Paul's voice is also pretty interesting here too, like he really goes for those low registers when he sings, see, see, which is contrasted nicely with the higher part at the end of the verse. And he actually does some double tracking here as well, which just sounds heavenly. Like, who else besides Linda can harmonise better with Paul than himself? In terms of instrumentation, the standout piece here is, again, the bass, two songs in a row. But it's so thudding and heavy and reverberating. Like, it's, it's, it's the complete opposite of the bass we got on the last song. As instead of being really melodic and being this carefully crafted counter melody, we just have these slow, thumping, low notes that just resonate out slowly. It's so weighty and booming, and it really conveys the scale of the ocean, you know? You also get some really fun, dissonant, droning keyboards in the back of the mix, which almost sounds like the music you might be hearing on the boat itself. And it's worth pointing out too that this is not another case of a drum machine doing all the work for Paul, and instead we actually have a real drum kit. 
And now I think it's high tide. Uh, I mean, high tide, we covered the Cornish wafer, the B-plot part of this song. And as we know, Paul and Denny Lane, actually, uh, both have a penchant for nautical ditties. And Cornish wafer might just be the most on-the-nose example we're ever going to cover on this podcast, making the Grey Goose segment of Morse Moose and the Grey Goose sound relatively restrained and nuanced by comparison. Here, Paul shifts gears from a semi-serious slow dirge to an impossibly silly, whimsical sea shanty that is completely the opposite tone of the first part, which makes for a nice contrast. It keeps things moving and interesting. And it's just goofy through and through. It's Mad Professor Paul, and you get Paul indulging in his love of strange and unique instruments, though it's all done through the synth here, but the synths evoke a real authentic sound of pipes and flutes being played on deck. It all feels very like Popeye the Sailor Man, almost. Now, this is probably the single song on this whole album that I wish I had the official lyrics for, as there's clearly some joke that I'm not able to fully appreciate without getting the whole picture. Though, I can still manage to make out that he's singing about being a Cornish wafer and a Cornish pasty, and he's coming home. Um, Though, for anyone who doesn't know, Cornish wafers and pasties are food items from Cornwall here in the UK. Cornwall is a coastal town, uh, which is the most southern point of the UK, actually. And the Cornish pasty is a semi-circular baked pastry, and a Cornish wafer is like a cracker-like biscuit, I guess would be the best way to put it. And I have no idea why he is these things. I have no idea what is going on. And for now, I just have to put it down to Mad Paul just having a bit of fun in the studio. You know, whereas with other songs, I say it doesn't matter what he's singing because the singing is so good. The opposite is the case here because I need to know exactly why Paul is affecting this crazy old sea captain persona for this song. I need to know why he's a Cornish pasty or a wafer. But no matter how obscured the lyrics are, you know, if Paul is having this much immature, silly fun, I cannot help but dig it. And then we come back to the C part of the song. But it doesn't end there, because one of the best idiosyncratic parts of this composition is how, unlike other McCartney double song affairs, it goes from A to B to A to B to A again, rather than just swapping from A to B and then maybe back to A for the close. It keeps going back and forth constantly, which really was quite enjoyable, actually. And it does kind of symbolise the different states of the ocean. Like, some parts of the journey are quite sloggy and serious. Some parts are quite fun and uplifting, you know? Honestly, folks, I think this one really is a bit of a lost gem. Had the Rupert thing petered out earlier, I totally could picture this song appearing on London Town alongside Morse Moose and maybe forcing the album to be a bit more... indicative of the fact that it was indeed recorded on a boat. But no, it's buried here on an unreleased Rupert album, and it's not fair. It's not fair, I tells you, because this is another highlight. It's easily one of the most McCartney-esque things in this collection, and an example that not even Rupert is safe from the proclivities of mad Professor McCartney. Next up, and the joyous tone of this seafaring adventure is going to swiftly change and reveal the darker, more primordial mode of the sea. These are much more turbulent and dangerous waters now, and this next song is called Storm. 
Right, folks, it's becoming more and more clear that this film is to be scored extensively by epic tracks during travelling sequences, as this is now, like, the fifth instrumental. Three for flying and now two for sea, back-to-back, no less. Yeah, this is going to be part of what's clearly an extended seafaring sequence in the narrative. And again, thinking about what kind of grand frescoes of turbulent, giant waves crashing in the in in the background you know and ships nearly flipping over you know jeff dunbar would have done this one right as well sadly even with the presence of sailor sam rupert has ended up in rougher seas and the tone shifts to match the title going from a jaunty saunter over the waves to an epic struggle against the elements so i read at first that this was apparently just a reworking of sea and i really wasn't getting that vibe at first but It doesn't take long before you realise that this whole song is essentially a half-speed, high-intensity, heavier, reverb-heavy, treble-heavy version of C, with some extra badass noodling thrown on top. Now, what I like so much about this thematically is that it does show you, and the kids who have been watching this, that the C is something that can just change on a whim. This is still C from before, but patently a more dangerous version of it. You know, Paul really does evoke the feeling of being in and the scale of a storm so magnificently here and conveys to the listener that this is not a high point in the story. Like, I've never felt worried for a fictional cartoon bear because of an instrumental on an unreleased album, and yet, here we are. In terms of tone and instrumentation, this one feels more akin to Flying Horses from earlier, And again, we have Paul doing his own heavy-ass electric guitar work, something we rarely ever hear. And again, it's buried on an unreleased album of bootlegs. I mean, the guitar work here is so epic. It kind of makes the situation sound as cool as it is dangerous, which might work against it a little, but I'll take any chance I can to hear Paul rock out like this. As with most of the songs on this album, Paul throws in a bit of diegetic sound into the mix, and fittingly, for a song called Storm, he adds in thunder, and what sounds like the constant rumble of, like, you know, stormy weather and crashing waves. I mean, with the abundance of sound effects and soaring, sweeping electric guitar work we get here, I was first reminded of, like, Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, which is always a positive But yeah, the atmosphere of this song is titanic, and you do feel dwarfed by the scale of this storm. Then, about four-fifths of the way through, after all that scariness, the skies part, and the ocean seemingly calm once more as we revert back to one last run-through of the song C from the last track. Like, maybe it would have been better if Paul had just recorded this as one great long song with three parts. But still, regardless of that... I love the way that both sides of the ocean are connected with the sea theme, like the happy and the sad. And now we have a song that was just a, a fun little part of a song, now becoming a, a mini light motif for this part of the film, which gives it a greater sense of connectivity and scope, and I like it even more now. Right, I'd like to say that this is the last oceanic song we're looking at here today, but that's not the case given McCartney's weird-ass narrative, and so I'll just end by saying that this song is certainly very interesting in the terms of its composition, and I know it would have worked very well in the movie, but as a solo song, especially considering how derivative it is of the last one, I don't think I'll be adding it to any playlists anytime soon, you know, if I could. Though, if you go on YouTube, there is a version where it puts 
Sieg and Cornish Wafer and Storm together all as one song. And as I suspected, it does sound much better. So go and check that one out as well. Right, onto a song that feels slightly out of order on this track listing. Again, due to McCartney writing a story seemingly out of order or in the wrong way. This is Nutwood Scene. Out of all the tracks on this album, this is the one that most sounds like it's from the same family as Jim Max Band or The Country Hams, and I'm sure for some of you that that is going to be a good thing. Sadly for me, folks, i got to say that this is probably the second weakest track on the entire album, and certainly the weakest one so far. This is as close as we get to just straight-up incidental music on this whole thing, and Whilst not everything we've heard so far is something that I would listen to outside of the context of the wider album, this is the song that really only works within the context of the wider album, again at least so far. And it does not stand up on its own feet at all. The problem with this one song is that it basically doesn't go anywhere or do anything. Like, I know it's only two minutes long, but there's an awful lot more you could have done in that time. And every time the same sequence of notes comes to the end of the melody, I was kind of expecting some shift or twist or new piece of instrumentation, but no, it just starts up again like some monotonous 8-bit video game. This one gets real old and real repetitive real fast. And whilst I can admit that it has some of that saccharine, upbeat McCartney appeal to it, it just can't sustain the runtime. Like, I know I've criticised McCartney songs for not changing or doing anything on occasion, but in this literal case, aside from some minor variation of notes being played by McCartney on the piano, kind of like the the, the, the under melody or the, you know, the, the, the underscore, this is just this is just the same notes over and over again. And I know I've also had a go at McCartney songs that sound like they're unfinished, but here, being that this is literally a demo from a demo album, I would say that out of all the material here, this is the one that literally sounds like it is at least partially unfinished. The only production highlight we get at all on this one, actually, is the fact that Paul layers a lot of bird chirping from start to finish. Like, it's interesting to have what I assume would be the diegetic sound of the movie here, you know, aka the birds that Rupert is literally hearing chirping in Nutwood, as it does somewhat sell the idea of us really being there, even if it is only just the soundtrack. It's cute, it's very Paul, and it's the one talking point I really have about this song at all. Though, I also want to point out that there's some excellent tambourine work here, and I only really wanted to point that out because I don't think I've ever actually addressed anyone playing the tambourine before on this podcast. 
In conclusion, folks, this is certainly airing towards the status of a curio rather than a must-listen lost track in the McCartney songbook. I know some of you out there will find it cute, which it is, but I ain't going to be re-listening to it anytime soon. Up next, we have a song that could not sound more like an early 70s McCartney cold cut if it tried. This is Walking in the Meadow. everyone just from the title you can pretty much summarize what this song is going to likely sound like this is another song whose title easily could have been a country hand b-side but thankfully this song is more within the wheelhouse of the rest of the album if anything this song is an amalgamation of everything that we've heard before all rolled into one single song we get the relaxed tone of sunshine sometime the whistling of when the wind is blowing the sonorous guitar of rupert's song one and the creative lounge piano word that we've seen across several songs now. And the result is mostly pleasant. Overall, this is a pretty straightforward instrumental where McCartney builds upon all of these aforementioned pre-established styles, tones and instruments. And I do enjoy all of them. I like all the instrumental parts. I like Paul's da-da-da vocals and the whistling is as charming as ever. But I am somewhat left wanting more, which is pretty rare with a McCartney song. Yeah. Folks, this is one isn't bad or anything, but it doesn't generate much of an emotional response from me or anything. Like, if I had to pick the most generic of all the tracks on this album, this would probably be it. Again, I'm not having a pop, but it also doesn't pop out at me that much either. And maybe that's the point. Maybe this is a song that's meant to symbolise this just being another day in Rupert's life. You know, he takes relaxing strolls through the meadow all the time, and this is just another one of them, despite the fact that it's like towards the the third act when things really should be ramping up, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. And yeah, this song is more than likely entirely on point and on theme and perfect for Jeff Dunbar to animate gorgeous countryside vistas to, but in terms of music on its own, it does fade into the background a little, as there isn't anything you need to make it stand out from the crowd. And part of me reckons that this is one of those points on the album where we really could have done with a bit of a shake-up. I mean, the reason I'm probably a little less receptive of this song is that narrative structure hang-up that I have. Like, this is the part where we should have had a more intense, more climactic piece of music, and instead, albeit in a very atypical McCartney move, we have another peaceful, laissez-faire kind of song, and my inner film snob is just crying out for something with a little more urgency and poignance. And again, I get what Paul is going for here, but on the other hand, I also want to hear McCartney do his version of Duel of the Fates from Star Wars, The Bridge of Khazad-dûm from Lord of the Rings, or Molossus from Batman Begins. 
Also, this is another one of those songs that, as far as I'm concerned, is crying out for a proper McCartney vocal to be placed over the top of it. I mean, yeah, we do get some cute da-da-da-da-da vocals with some little improvised whispers and even a whistling section, but that melody, to me, seems ripe for Paul to actually add some words to it. This is getting so common on this album now that I know that Paul must have had at least one set of lyrics for one of these songs that he wished he could have used but had to pull back on. I can't prove it, but I know it. So yeah, folks, not too much to say about this one. I do admit in general that I struggle to go as long or as in-depth when it comes to instrumentals, especially short ones. But with this track and the last one, I generally just don't have that much to say about them. So I'm going to move on to our penultimate track. And I'm feeling that this sense of deja vu is not going to go away anytime soon as we now talk about C Melody. Now folks, when I started writing the notes for this one, I had a terrible feeling that I'd already spoken about this song as well. And as it turns out, I have. Yeah, rather foolishly, on the fifth episode proper of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, aka the London Town era one, we did indeed cover a song entitled Sea Melody. Now, I've read in some places that the original recordings of Sea Melody were indeed taped in the Virgin Islands. And that may be true, because the Ruby the Bear sessions may very well have carried on into the late 70s. But I think I made that mistake because Sea Melody appears on several London Town bootlegs. And anyone who didn't know about Rupert who was putting those together may have just assumed, because that album was recorded on the sea, that this was a part of those wing sessions. However, the version I reviewed before was only about a 30 second snippet, either because that, that was the bootleg that they had access to, or because... Paul only bashed out about 30 seconds of it or so aboard the Fair Carol. Apparently, the melody for this song also eventually appeared on McCartney's 1997 classical album Standing Stone, but having quickly checked out the two songs with C in the title from that album, I'm not sure if that's 100% true or maybe I just didn't spot it because I'm a complete Luddite when it comes to that kind of music. As I've already pointed out, it ain't half strange that we're getting another C song after Rupert returns to Nutwood, especially since he's supposed to be flying in the Professor's magic flying bubble, but I'm not going to get bogged down about the wider film here because it does seem to derail me somewhat. Yeah, folks, I'm kind of bummed out here, mostly because of how much this album is petering out as we come to the arse end. Like, we've had all these classic McCartney tunes, and now that we're coming to the close... We've had two rather limp dick instrumentals, with C Melody being the third in a row. Again, I really needed a pick-me-up at this point on the album, and I just don't get that with this song. 
I mean, for any of you who were left wondering what the rest of this song sounded like from the Cold Cuts episode, well, guess what? It sounds just like the first 30 seconds, but longer. There's no major movement or change-up that you've missed, and it makes the fact that I've already spoken about this one an even more egregious waste of time. Going back to basics, this is just Paul on the piano, and whilst the tune is certainly recognisable as being one of his compositions in his style, it lacks that certain spark that makes it memorable. This just sounds like the stuff that Paul would be playing in between takes during the Let It Be sessions, rather than anything specific, and listening to it just before the recording of this made me appreciate the last two instrumentals a little bit more. At least Nutwood scene had a bright, chirpy jaunt to it, and at least Walking in the Meadow was far more atmospheric and lyrical. Speaking of the other songs, though, the biggest obstacle this track has to overcome is The Palace of the King of the Birds, which is basically the exact same kind of song with the exact same kind of tone, just done better. Like the last couple of songs, I know that there likely would have been some glorious animated imagery to help elevate this material and make it a little more affecting for me, but as is, this is the piano equivalent of something like Soggy Noodle, where it just ends up as a, a trivia piece from the McCartney songbook that I know is never going to be brought up in any casual or rarely ever in a deep McCartney conversation ever, ever, ever. And finally, everyone, we thankfully have a proper song to end this album in a proper fashion with a big old smile on my face. I don't care if we've technically already heard it before on this episode, not even on a previous one. This is Rupert's Song version 2. Folks, thank the heavens we have something with a bit of flair and passion for the last hurrah of this album. It's a song so nice, Paul did it twice. And being that it was already the theme for the titular character, it makes sense that it will be brought back at the end of the movie. I mean, the song hasn't got like a massive hook or a catchy riff or anything, but I think you can get away with calling this like the light motif of the album or something similar. You know, this is the song that will play when Rupert returns home for a second time. And you can picture the whole cast of characters waving goodbye as the camera begins to pull out, getting one last aerial view of Nutwood Grease style before cutting to black. The scenes write themselves. The animation would be great. It's all very fitting and works perfectly well. This would totally work. No questions asked. I love the first version. I love this one. Also, the fact that the audiences would hear this twice would ensure that it would be drilled into the heads of the prospective audience, particularly children, thus ensuring the sales of the albums and a probable single that would have been released alongside it. 
What are we thinking, folks? Rupert theme on A side and maybe sunshine sometime or when the wind is blowing on the B side? Drop me an email at paulmccarnipod at gmail.com and let me know your own ideas for what the single would have been. What I did like about this song coming back at the end was that, again, it was a very McCartney-esque sort of move. You know, this is the Rupert reprise, but instead of a short reprise, we get the whole song done again in a slightly different style. As with all of his other reprisals, it gives the whole album, the whole story, a certain sense of completion, symmetry, and circularity. You know, we're back to where it all started, so is Rupert, and now it's time for us both to go off and enjoy a nice cup of tea. Would it be nice if there was a, a kind of day in the life, 1985, or through our love kind of hit to close on properly after the reprise? Yeah, it really would. But I'm guessing I'm not the only person who thought of this as, as I mentioned, We All Stand Together was used as one of those kind of tracks on several of the released bootlegs. Now, whilst this song is on the service more or less exactly the same as the first one, it does have a few subtle changes that do make it stand out on its own, even if they're mostly superficial. We get some alternate guitar leads that are oddly more Harrison-esque in their performance. Paul sings with some slightly different vocals in the verses, along with some little scat vocalizations here and there. Overall, I'd say the song is a little more upbeat and fast, which makes sense as this is likely meant to be playing over the credits and you want people leaving with a smile on their face. Though the most noticeable and somewhat bizarre choice we have here is the fact that we have no Linda backing vocals. Now, this does allow Paul to be a bit more showy-offy and demonstrate his range with some more powerful peak moments, but the lack of presence of Linda does take away a little bit of that special magic for me. And that might just be me, I'm totally willing to accept that. But also, I'm right, Linda fucking rules. The oddest thing about this song though is the fact that it isn't normally called just Rupert Song version 2 or Rupert Song reprisal on the bootlegs, which it should be. Quite often, this song is called Rupert Song reggae or reggae version. And from the very first time I listened to this song, I was like, mm, that's bullshit. Like, this is clearly just a different take with a slightly different production. But there is nothing, NOTHING to indicate that this is meant to be a reggae mix of the song. I have no idea what inspired people to call it as such, and I want to help redress the balance by only ever referring to it from now on as either Rupert Song 2, Rupert Song Alternate, or Rupert Song Reprisal. As I said at the start, folks, I love the first version, I love this version. They're both great, they're both unique in their own way. And it's a great little theme for Rupert. He really deserves something as good as this. And I'm glad McCartney gave it to him. And there we are, folks. That is everything I could ever possibly talk about in terms of Rupert and Paul McCartney without going into the Frog Song short film. And we all stand together, which I said I will do at another date. Ooh, right. Sorry, this one's taken a little bit longer to come out again. Uh, not only are my neighbours doing construction work, but they've now also moved in and they've got a dog that howls whenever they're not in the house. So I've had to start recording in my sister's old bedroom, which has been a pretty unique experience. And I'm even recording this last little segment at 6am in the morning, just to make sure that I actually get it out on the right day. Well, not the right day, just as soon as possible. 
But yeah, folks, this has been a really fun one, despite production issues. I've really, really had a lot of fun exploring the world of Rupert. I've learned so much more than I ever thought going in, even with the limited sources at my disposal. I hope I've got it all right. If I've made any historical inaccuracies, please do drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'll even be sending this episode to the friends of Rupert online to see what they say. But I can't believe how deep the story went. I can't believe how much of a significant part of McCartney's life this was. And it's even crazier that something so massive and consuming of his time never, never got finished. Yeah, I really do hope that the untitled McCartney animated collaboration with Netflix is in fact a redoing, a re-attempt at the Rupert the Bear movie rather than something like Tropic Island Hum or High in the Clouds, something like that. It would be really great if Paul and Netflix could do this together because I know that they would knock it out of the park. Though, it doesn't have to be Netflix, folks. It doesn't have to be Netflix. It could be any of the streaming services. I mean, this would be a wonderful inclusion on something like Disney+, Plus, for example. And we both know Paul has his finger in that pie as well with all the Beatles stuff. But yeah, it's been a really, really fascinating journey. And then you've got the music as well. And I've got to say, the music has been much more impactful on me than I ever would have imagined. This is a real must-listen for any McCartney fan. If you've only heard those snippets I've been playing, just do go onto YouTube or Vimeo and find the entire Paul McCartney Rupert the Bear bootleg rip that is on there for free. It is absolutely outstanding that so many of these classic songs are just tucked away in this unreleased part of his discography. There are so many places where it could be released, like this could easily be a part of the Back to the Egg archive re-release. Oh my God, if that was a thing, that would be fucking fantastic. It would make me certainly buy the biggest version of that box set automatically. And hey, if Paul wants to release it as a separate little curio, maybe alongside a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts album, maybe put those two together, I know that that would certainly sell as well. So many of these songs, folks, are now part of my official Paul McCartney canon. Again, some of the stuff that Paul doesn't release is better than the stuff that he does release, and certainly a lot better than stuff that other people release as well. And yeah, we've come to the end now, folks. This has been a a long episode I don't think any of us were imagining. This is the place to get all of your Rupert all of the time, as well as McCartney. Thank you for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing, folks. I know I certainly have. Keep listening to Paul. Keep reading Rupert, especially if you haven't in a while. Go and check out the comics. They are very charming. Thank you very much, everyone. Peace and love, peace and love. No autographs. Play us out, Denny.
Thank you.